0: You are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org
1: or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes store.
0: Welcome to another episode of The View. We are so glad you're joining us today. I'm uh, Christina Rivera and I am coming to you from uh, just rainy, drizzly, yucky Charlottesville, Virginia. And we are thrilled to be welcoming uh, Dr. Elias Ortega to the show today. But first, the other uh, co hosts are going to introduce themselves. So take it away, Michael.
2: Good morning, everyone. This is Michael Tino here in Peekskill, New York, um, where it is also gray and rainy and drizzly. And I, every time I am inclined to complain about that, I think this could be snow. Um, and it's not. So I'll deal with gray and rainy and drizzly. And next week is school break. So I am headed somewhere warm. Uh, and Tisha uh, yes, Hauser, you are you are out there on the West Coast where the sun has barely risen. How are you?
1: I'm Aisha Hauser, and I'm in Seattle, Washington. And I'm cursing you all with my weather until we move the view to later in the day, because this is nonsense, this 8 in the morning. (laughs) I am cranky. I'm good. Um, It's gray and rainy, and it's early here on the West Coast. And and I'm usually an early bird, but not this morning. I'm exhausted. Uh, Antonia, como estas? We're bilingual here on The View today, so.
3: Bien, bien. Um, I am here in the beautiful archive of the uh, Unitarian Church here in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, And I actually have with me, I'm going to take you on a little tour, just for Meadville's sake. Look at that. It's Lee Barker Sermons right here, folks. So I thought that was fun. And it is a dreary day. So la la. February 23rd is here, and 29th, 152nd. I hate February. I just want to put that on record. So I know some people hate January, but February is the real booger. So yeah, that's how I'm doing. I will be over on uh, YouTube, and please chat away. We are excited to hear what you have to say, and um, I can't wait to pass it along to the people over here in the Zoom room. So see you then.
0: And Lori, are you coming out behind the chalice to introduce yourself? That's OK. We have Lori Soroski, who's on um, tech, back of tech for us today. So that is who is behind the chalice today. Thank you so much for being with us, Laurie. And um, so usually we start off the view with, you with um, a roundup of what's going on in Unitarian Universalism. And um, what do we have, folks?
1: So there's UU The Vote. And did they hire someone? Because I'm seeing postings. UU The Vote is an initiative by the Unitarian Universalist Association to inspire, empower UUs and other folks to vote this year because it's super important. We're hoping to vote out fascism, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Um, So I don't know, though. Does anyone know if they hired someone? I know they were looking.
2: I have not seen an announcement.
0: I haven't seen one either. but fingers crossed. And yeah, and and you can find out more about you vote on the website. Um, uh, If you're in a congregation or UU community, check it out, see how you can uh, get in and get participating. It's a it's a great initiative. Um, Another initiative that you all can support uh, finding our way home is our religious professionals of color annual retreat It's coming up this coming March. And every year, The UU teach-in organization um, collects funds to support religious professionals who are going to finding our way home. Um, The UUA picks up a big chunk of finding our way home for registration and travel and lodging, uh, but there's still expenses uh, for people who want to go, for religious professionals of color who want to go. And those expenses can be anywhere from missed income. If they are used to doing circuit um, sermons on Sundays, they're going to miss income. If they um, you know, want to go out with friends some evening <laughs> while they're at Finding Our Way Home, we want them to be able to do that. These relationships um, and the accountability that we develop um, at Finding Our Way Home is what sustains us in large part for the rest of the year to be serving unitarian universalism in our communities and um, often it's the only time that religious professionals get are able to be together in community and it is in no way shape or form to say hyperbolic to say that um, that it saves lives and um, so if we are committed to saying that we want um, religious professionals of color in our communities then we need to support them and so um, there is, so you can do a PayPal me at uh, UUTeachin, or you can go to UUTeachin.org and use the donate link. Anything else out there, folks?
2: We have some, uh, some announcements regarding General Assembly have come out this week. Um, I don't think Danielle Dabana had been announced as the, the preacher at the Service of the Living Tradition. Uh, last week, when when we when we last gathered, and that is really exciting, um, I am actually going to have to go to the Service of the Living Tradition, because I will not miss Danielle's s- <laughs> sermon. I just, I will not. Um, I, I, I often go out to dinner during the Service of the Living Tradition, I will admit. Um, and uh, it has been announced very recently that Naomi Klein will be the WEAR lecturer, and um, I probably should be more excited than I am about that. Uh, but lots of people I know are excited and, uh, hopefully she'll, uh, somebody posted
1: on my page. I wonder why Naomi Klein. I'm like, my guess is she was the one who said yes, because I think every year we try to get Obama or Michelle, either one, Barack or Michelle, we get, we, I mean, over the years, they've, you know, folks have tried to get, I don't want to say big name people, but influencers who really, are hard to, to or expensive. Um, so my guess is she, she may have been third or fourth on the list. I don't know. I mean, God, I have no, she might've been first. I don't know. I'm not spreading rumors. I have no clue. I'm just thinking she may have said yes. I would have loved Winona LaDuke back. She apparently pissed off a shit ton of UUs in Minneapolis, which I'm perfectly fine with. But I think, especially because um, my understanding is this GA indigenous um, rights and uh, issues are going to be lifted up and we're gonna be on the land of the Wampanoag, I believe. And so um, having Winona Leduc or someone um, who is an indigenous activist would have been great.
2: Yeah, I was kind of hoping for Robin Wall Kimmerer who uh, is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, um, which is a six year old book that A, changed my life, but B, just hit the New York Times bestseller list this week mm-hmm. um, after six years. Out, <laughs> out in circulation, which is pretty astounding, in publication. But she's brilliant, and also from the northeast. Um, mm-hmm. So I was kind of hoping for her, well, she's but she's not in the um,
0: Yeah, I think there's a a little bit of a disturbing trend, and and you know I'm thrilled with the choice of the Ware lecture. It's not in so much about this particular choice. But I think one of the the main one of the main reasons that that this where lecture was chosen um, was to be able to kind cli- of um, highlight climate change. She's a for those who don't know, she's a climate uh, change activist um, author, and um, I think that we need to look at how in the U.S. we are framing that um, dialogue and discussion um, because so much of the the high profile climate change, um, activists that are getting the press time are white people, you know? So we see, you know, the, the young woman who came over from, from Europe, who everybody was, you know, really excited about. And then, you know, we've had, um, you know, other people here in the U S, um, and it's really taking away from. Um, particularly, indigenous climate change activists who have been doing this work for decades, and um, I think we need to find a way to reframe that. and And my hope is that um, she will do some of that in her um, in her Wear lecture. Um, I think that if that isn't present, then then we really have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we doing?
2: Yeah, and even Greta Thunberg. Is really clear about the fact that she does her work in a multiracial international coalition with indigenous activists from all over the world. Um and she's like, Yeah, look at these people. Like, don't just don't just ask me. Um
0: Yeah. Yeah, there there has to be to reframe this way to be, to reframe this. So today we are. Oh, sorry, anything else? I just want to make sure I didn't. So today we are thrilled that Dr. Elias um, Elisa Ortega is joining us. Newly minted, not not so much newly. I don't know. Can we still say newly minted president of Minma Lombard Theological School? Thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled that you are here. Um, And your bio uh, says that you're an interdisciplinary scholar who received your MDiv and PhD in religion and society, magna cum laude, thank you very much, from Princeton Theological Seminary. And prior coming to Meadville, um, uh, Dr. Ortega served as Associate Professor of Social Theory and Religious Ethics at Drew University Theological School. he currently serves the larger Unitarian Universalist Movement as a member of the UUA's Commission on Institutional Change. We have the links for um for that, I think, in in our chat room bios. Um and so thank you so much for coming. Dr. The- Yay! Thank you much. So tell us, um, so tell us how long you have been, have been, have had the gig what it's been like to,
4: to come into Meadville. Uh, well, I started July July 1st. So what about eight eight months or so, um, right? Coming, coming into the work. Um, so it's, it's been really good and exciting, right? I think uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm happy for, for friends that help me uh, reframe and, and refocus questions, um, right? I have a good friend who, uh, encourage me to never ask the question uh, if I'm happy in the job, right? But whether if I'm finding it fulfilling, right? And I'm uh, enjoying it, right? I think that's a, a much better, better way to to think about it, right? Because ha- happiness is fickle right? in some ways, and uh, the things that make me happy are not necessarily connected to to the job that I do. <laughs> I find it fulfilling and and engaging, right? And, and rewarding in other ways, uh, but but happiness is not, and that does not mean that I'm unhappy, right? Or or upset. Um I think it's it's more realistic to to the kind of of work that comes with their opportunities and there are also um in interesting challenges, right, to uh, to manage and, and work through. Um and I'm finding those to be deeply rewarding. I think um I need to go back to, to Facebook and do do a clarification. I, I posted a couple of days ago that I have a great day, it was a good day, but I didn't say why it was a good day. And and I think for for me oftentimes my good day in the office are those days that you know, some people that love you uh, enough, right, to hold you accountable to the work that you're trying to do. And at the same time, they encourage you, uh, right, whether they are face to face or, you know, on Zoom or just giving you a text, they're still looking in your eye and tell you the things that you need to hear um, as they prep you up as well, right? That, that makes it a good day. Um, being able to have conversation with folks that support the school, right, in, in multiple ways, uh, financially, with their time, uh, is really fulfilling, right? And here, Hear for them as to why right they up they to support the school uh, for it's rewarding. Uh, being able to have a, you know, a staff meeting and, and throw down and do some real work, um, have some intense and difficult conversations about you know, things that we have to do, um, but also laugh while, while we're doing it. Right? That makes it a really really, really good day. Uh, I think at least in my book, I can, I can leave the office in the work and say like you know we did some, some good work today. we're moving the needle um, in, in the right direction. Right. Those make it a good day. Um, and, and I think, um, well, I can say with confidence that th- those days are uh, more frequent than not right? in, in the work that, that we're doing. Right?
1: Was there a, top, a number one thing that you wanted to hit the ground running? Um, I don't wanna say change, but transform, modify, add. Is there something that you were like, okay, this is number one on the list of seven, my dog is being very cute. Um, Was there something that you came in, think that you could talk about that you wanted to change or do?
4: So just for my own um, clarification, is the question more about kind of a vision question? It's more about kind of a practical managerial? Well, how
1: about both? What's your vision? What's the vision answer? And what is your practical answer? So two-part question, A and B.
4: Okay. Well, you know i think one of the challenges uh that, that i find and this is true for any transition uh right in in leadership right whether it is you know in academic leadership like in my case or whether it's in congregational leadership um right etc um is that there's there's this tense balance right between um the how do you communicate right the changes that that you see that are uh needed how do you get to know and how quickly do you get to know uh, the reality of of the work um, that that is happening, right? And what has happened that way. Um, and also do the the PR work that folks uh, don't get the perception that anything that you're doing is something that you, you know, uh, uh, critical, right? Of the prior uh, institution, right? Because um, I think, <clears throat> right, you were not in those shoes, right? So you did not know exactly all the processes that were happening um, right before. So it's a process of both learning, um, right? And, and establishing a new, new style. Uh, but at the same time, you honor the work that has been done uh, right, and establish uh, some groundwork for the future work. Right? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to say from for my perspective, right, one of the things that has been um, very important is to create a process of both um, conversation and more uh, detailed um, accountability structures of the work that we're doing. Right? And, and some of that work is how, how do we track the work that we're doing and how do we close the loop when things are closed. Right. So that so that we know, right, and we are in, in the same page, um, and and I would say one of the biggest transitions that for us that has happened, um, and and I think we did it all with. Uh, some trepidation, um, right, in, in, in some sense. Um, but also, in, in other sense, technologically, we were somewhat kind of forced to do it as well. Uh, a little bit later in the game, once we got started, um, is to become more uh, digitalized, right, in, in the work that we do and occupy a, a shared uh, working environment a digital working environment. Um, and, and I think one of the things that even though uh, it means basically learning a, a new language from scratch right, and a new uh, flow of, of work, uh, it has also allowed us to have more, um, I'm gonna say pertinent conversations right to the work uh, because then we break some, in, we have to intentionally break some silos, whether we are in the office or not, uh, in how do we communicate, and in fact, uh, perhaps the biggest advantage with that has been to have to be specific about um, how to communicate, right? So, in other words, we assume that we're doing a particular kind of work, and we assume that we know the work that we have to do, and who's have the information, how that information is shared. Uh, but rarely do we actually sit down and say, like, hey, you know, who has this information? When do we need to buy? How does the flow? How does your work impact impact my work, uh, right? In terms of time, and just even looking at the calendar, right? Of because to move into a digital environment, we have to do that. Like, what is the calendar of stuff that we're doing and when does it happen? And it, that was a big eye-opener. And it's like, oh, right, these are the moments in which we are bottlenecking ourselves. Can we move that in, in other spaces? Uh, how can we help, right? These are the, the kind of the, the times in which a particular department is really busy. This is the time in which a particular department is not as busy, right? Or what are the pieces of, of one department that impacts the work of the other, but we have not communicated that. Right. And, and some of the things are just really kind of simple stuff. Like what is the timeline of uh, when do we have to make an announcement and what does it take to, to have an announcement out? Right. Um, some of that stuff is very, very simple, but without having the clear process of communication, uh, right, it can kind of drag an, an operation in ways that is not kind of necessary. So um, one of the biggest then opportunities for us is how do we kind of put time into this kind of more tedious work of getting it off the ground? so that then we can get to the more meaningful work, right? And, and so far, uh, let, let, let me say that I'm gonna own this. I, I hate Microsoft systems at times, like it's, I don't speak Microsoft really well, um, so I needed to have to, to learn Microsoft, um, right? Um, and I realized there, there are some possibilities, and, and I think uh, as a staff, we're actually learning together, right, about uh, the, the system and sharing information and teaching each other about how to use it. Uh, there are things that I know how to do really well uh, I mean, the team environment, I understand it. I can work okay with it. Uh, but Word documents itself are just so clumsy for, for me as a user that I, I just do not, you know, I rely on others to help me. I don't understand how that works. Uh, uh, right. And I think it's been it's been good for us to do that. Uh, but it would it also translates for us outside of, of kind of the direct office space and the kind of service and literacy that we're trying to do is um, it has helped us clarify questions around the assumptions with whom we connect and how, um, right? And what do we need to do in our end to be more uh, kind of explicit about implicit pieces um, and also understand that that, that will require other kind of work in our end, right? Uh, and, and those are moments that are helping us uh, really think through um, the curriculum change that, that we are putting in effect um, is helping us think of uh, the ways in which we engage with congregations, right, and, and the wide. Um, that we have to create feedback loops. How do we create those feedback loops, right? Um, how do we even get stuff on the ground running that we know who's who's doing what, where, and why? Uh, and, and, and more importantly, how to track that work, right, into the work that we're doing. So those have been exciting. And as you can imagine, it's taking a good time, right, a good amount of time, uh, but it's also, I think, uh, giving us some uh, good perspective, right, in the possibilities ahead. Um, one of the things that I, that I say this, uh, and I say this with uh, a little bit talking cheek, but also with, with passion and conviction, is that even though as you youth, we tend to speak about being very um, uh, intentional about outreach, right, and being very interfaith and, and the like, uh, institutionally, we tend to navel gaze a lot, right, uh, and, and think that, you know, we, we, we have this down. Uh, we we need nobody else right outside of the space to help us think through this. Um, you
1: noticed
4: that, did you? <laughs> That's one of our six,
1: biggest freaking
4: problems. <laughs> <laughs> about seven years now. I noticed that, <laughs> right? And and it's been kind of intriguing, right? Uh, uh, to see the ways in which that replicates institutionally, and 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 I think it's a matter of of outreach, right? It's a matter of of connection, but being intentional about that level of, of uh, hospitality and, and, and largely you know we are a, a mighty organization in terms of human resources right in some financial capacity but we're also small in numbers um, right and I think we can maximize our impact in other kinds of collaborations uh, that at the moment right, are not non-existent and, and being learning right being learners um, all the way through so that's something that I'm uh, really excited about in the next uh, coming years uh, for, for us as an institution is the way in which we intentionally engage Right, folks who are not uh UU, right, in some conversations around uh ministry and leadership. So that's a long answer to your question, but
0: <laughs> I love all
4: it. All that in about seven months, you know, just <laughs> um
0: so one of the things I noticed that you that you had put out there that speaks a lot to what you were just talking about, the technical technological fluency. Um, yeah. but you actually put it in terms of it being um one of the priorities of Proposed uh five areas of effective religious leadership in the 21st century yeah. And I've you know, I I read these when you when you um have had put them out and just reread them again um for today. And and I I wanted like talk about them, but I also want to talk about the process in which you came to them. Um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I think that um mm. you know as we are looking at ourselves as a faith, and really trying to talk about what we need to be
4: um,
0: as we move forward, and as we,
4: you know. Okay, sorry.
0: Evolve, no, I love it. Evolve. Um, what you know, the the process around this is mm-hmm. uh, as important as you know the, the product, and mm-hmm. um, and so the, I'll just name for our our listeners. Um, so the five areas um, are fostering intentional learning communities for social change and shared leadership, uh, robust engagement with Unitarian Universalist theology and with the larger UU movement, um, cultural competency skills and religious literacy, um, the growing importance of ecumenical and multi-faith education for religious leaders, and then that fifth one, which we were talking a little bit about, was um, but in this case, technology, te- technological fluency for I ministry, um, mm-hmm. which I think is you know super important too, as as we head into mm-hmm. you know even more and more digital. So can you tell me tell us a little bit about how those priorities came to be?
4: Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think. Um, each one of them will have a particular angle, right, in which I I, I came to them. Uh, so, for for example, um, you know, there's two that I can speak up. Uh, I think I can give very kind of concrete answers to. Uh, one of them is the the youth theology, and, and the second one uh, would be the um, the technology piece. Uh, so, in youth theology, right, I think one of my biggest concerns, and I'm coming at this as a theological educator. Uh, And that is somebody who breathes uh, breathes theology in some ways, I'm a sociologist by by training, um, right? So so I come uh, at at the work of studying theology from the social science perspective, which means that that one of the concerns that I have on the interest in theology for me is the ways in which it can help shape particular discourse, uh, ways of behavior and interaction with people, right? The way in which theology can ground organizations, Right. Um, And and one of the things that I'm deeply concerned about, right, in in UU as a practice uh, is that uh, we talk a lot about being a faith community and we talk a lot about this community, but we don't spend a lot of time doing serious theology. Right. And and, and what I mean, let me give you a good example. One of the things that I find really unique about um, UU as a faith movement is that we don't really do adult faith formation. Right. A lot of our practices towards faith formation are geared toward toward youth and children, right? The RE program. And oftentimes that formation also happens disconnected from the church, right? In the youth group, in the senior high group or in other spaces, right? So it's not unclear um, where what is the connection. I'm thinking from, from kind of the usual point of view and, and the, the person being shaped and formed by that practice, right? My experience of being shaped um, as a spiritual person and religious community, is happening outside right of the space that you can consider the larger sacred space, right? If you consider sanctuaries like that, uh, but it also means that for adults, right, we tend to understand that that is the moment of faith formation. Whatever happens right in in that forty-five minutes, uh, that is that is it. Um, we don't have intentionally outside of of that by and large, no, unless we do. Uh, a book club, right, in some shape or form uh, that is not spiritual formation. Interesting, right, and engaging, but it's not faith formation. Um, But more in large, if we take those 45 minutes, um, I'm I'm, going to say that most of the folks do not understand uh, the theology of the structure of the service itself. It's not a conversation that we have, right? For example, uh, is the order of service a liturgy, right? If you were to pose that question to folks, we'll be like, what are you talking about? Right. Um, and it's like, well, actually, this is this is a liturgy, right? We have secularized elements of it, right? But it's still supposed to move us through particular elements of interacting with the divine, right, or the holy, or the sacred, or being in community, uh, which whatever name you want to call it. Uh, but that is not something that we do kind of with intentionality, right? Um, but it also means that because we are, um, there's not no polite way of saying this. I'm just going to say. Um, one of the things that we have not done as a movement is help our people heal from religious trauma and hurt, right? Or what I'm ca- starting to call um, for a number of years now, just being more public about this, uh, we do a lot of theological malpractice, right? Um, and, and what I mean by, by that malpractice is that we don't, as faith leaders, we don't help people heal through the hurt, whatever the hurt is. And then the space that we create, the sacred space, is 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 a sanitized space, right? It is not. I think any faith community, any religious community uh, by and large understand that sacred holy spaces are dangerous spaces, right? If you look at, you know, the Hebrew Bible, uh, right? The holy of holies, the high priest only goes there once. And he goes there once tied with a rope in the chain with a bell just in case he dies in the holy place, uh, right? Only once a year, right? The other can goes on there different times, different spaces, right? Or you prepare and do the to enter into right, the sacred space if you're a, a practicing Muslim, right, in indigenous, religious, right, is the same process, right, the holy is not something that you just interact, uh, right, with uh, laissez-faire, but for your use, that's not the reality, right, we just, we enter in as we own this, this space in such a way that this is, you know, we, we could create and we consume it, and if we don't like it, we talk back to you, uh, right, we, and, 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 I, and I find that uh, what he created is a process that we Uh, as a faith movement do not interact intentionally with our tradition, right? Um, And understand uh, not only the the roots, but also the ways in which the branches have expanded from the roots, right? Uh, And understand the seeds that have fallen and created new trees, right? That are still UU theology. Um, And and I think we, we, as as a faith community, then come to the place that we feel that we can build uh, our own understanding because, because we are UU and it's my theology. Um, but that is disconnected, right? It's very individualistic, it's not connected or accountable to, to community as a whole. Right. And it, it doesn't sharpen itself against the tradition. I am by no way a traditionalist, um, right? But I think you have to understand tradition in order to understand where are you separating from, right? The reasons why, um, and the ways in which it can grow and expand, right? So traditions is not it's not static, right? That is traditionalism. And is the traditions expand and grow. Um, right, you, you gain new vocabulary. You'll learn new things of doing uh, what you do. Right? I think, you know, immigrant communities will learn how to cook in other places, uh, home dishes without the ingredients, and we, you know, we innovate, um, right? And in how we're doing it, but it's still kind of your food, right? Um, and and I think that's one of the things that I'm missing, uh, right, uh, in our movement uh, as a theological community, right. Um, and part of the challenge, and I think this is why thinking about theological my practice and religious trauma is so important, is that to do some of the foundational work would actually require us to struggle through um, Abogito, Judeo-Christian heritage, right? In ways that a lot of folks who are coming or hurt because of, of Christianity uh, or Judaism, right, for example, are not particularly ready or equipped to do, right? We have not equipped them as a faith community to do that work, right? And that is an us. Awesome. I mean, folks talk about J. Luther Adams, a Christian theologian, right? Uh, and then folks don't read it because it's too Christian, right? But since J. Luther Adams, what are the our, our theologians, right? Uh, I mean, we have I mean, the so this, Michael, this, our, and others, right? But we do not engage with them in the same way. Uh, Rebecca Parker, right? That's been one of the criticism uh, for her as a theologian that she's too Christian, right? And for many, that's an excuse not to engage right so uh, i think that's part of the work that we need to start doing as a faith community right yeah. i think so, there was a question yeah, there
0: yeah mm-hmm. so i want to, i want to make sure i'm tracking you um properly because i think what i hear you saying is that um is twofold so we have people who are coming in who have been tra- traumatized in their religion and their previous religious upbringing in some other faith or denomination mm-hmm. um And so we're not doing a good job of identifying that those folks need a specific type of trauma ministry to Mm -hmm. be able to then engage in a deep Unitarian Universalist um, experience. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I hear that. And then I think I also hear... For folks who are coming to us that don't have that trauma experience, we're also creating trauma in that we've sanitized our spaces so much to try and not further harm Mm -hmm. those folks who are coming in with that previous trauma Mm -hmm. because because we're not doing a good job of actually addressing the trauma. We're just trying to make a space that feels good and because, you know, the, the lowest common denominator, it almost becomes of, you know, because we're not actually addressing that. Is that, Mm -hmm. am I interpreting that right?
4: Yes, yes, I I think that is correct. Um, You know, recently Mm -hmm. I have a conversation with Reverend Jen Carson Bull uh, and we were talking about this issue. And uh, one of the things that she shared with me uh, is that uh, the way that she uh, has talked about this is uh, using metaphors of souvenirs and scars. Uh, right. So you have scar tissues and souvenirs uh, in, in the context of your religious experience. Um, right. And that means that, you know, with scars, we actually both talk about scars, right? You tell the stories about them. And, and sometimes, you know, they are not painful and sometimes they, they hurt, right, every so often. Um, right. So it, it is it, it is a reminder, right, of, of what happened. Uh, but you also have souvenirs, right, that it, remain, it reminds you of a good time. The enjoyment, the enjoyment, stories attached to them are different, uh, right? So we have to be able to, we have to be equipped to be able to do both, right? Uh, but the injury itself, even if it's still painful and you have a scar, scar tissue, right, and is healing or it has healed, right? It might impact your movement, right, and your mobility, right, and, and your health, but you still continue, right, on. Um, and I think that is part of the, the challenge, right? And in how, how do we do that with um, authenticity, right? And and calling us into being deeply accountable, right, to, to the movement. Because otherwise it becomes the, well, I believe whatever I want, right? Um, I build my own theology and, and I move through it because um, it is what I believe. And nobody can hold me accountable to our community because I don't I don't like it. Uh, period. Right, and and I think what what that eventually does is that it actually, it, it stunts our own spiritual growth, right, and, and unfolding, right, because we we're, we're not willing to to expand, and it is difficult work, right. Don't don't get me wrong; it is very difficult work. Um, I know personally, I have some experience in seminary that I'm still, right, um, kind of working through, right. And part of it was the particular context in which I was, uh, that it needed to to really work through some stuff, and in fact. I was having a conversation with, you know, a colleague from the very similar time um, and actually my colleague and my spouse and both say the same thing, right? Just be careful that you don't, you know, reawaken that, you know, experience from seminary and and fall into the same patterns, right? And it was a good signpost because I was not aware, right? That I was kind of starting already the same uh, kind of, you know, mood. Uh, And that was a really helpful wake-up call, right? uh, To me, to like wake home up. That's true. But he also pointed out that I still have some stuff to work through from that time that I haven't right, necessarily worked uh, worked through. Um, and I'm, I'm starting right to make some of those phone calls and say, hey, I know, we need to talk about a couple of things. <laughs> you know it might not be important for you, but is this is something that is important to me right as a person. Uh, so then to move on in, in the other conversation if that was okay about uh, technology, uh, part of my background is in in thinking through um, um, telecommunications right communication technology uh, has been part of my own research interest the way in which technology can of you know, shape what it means to be human right How do we understand the world how do we interact with the world I mean there's a lot of machines now right Many of us didn't grow up with them uh, but for you know a younger generation right Z and beyond like this is an extension of their senses right this is not a, this is not one an apparatus right this is part of the way in which they, interact and experience the world, um, right? So that means that uh, um, we our has always been the case, technology shape our biology and, and our culture. Um, and in some ways we can allow it to control it even if they are our own creations, right? Uh, which is in itself really interesting uh, to me. But uh, in terms of, of, of religion, uh, right? Technology and religion have, have this very kind of intriguing uh, um, relationship because there's a lot of technology that we do not consider technology, but it is, for example, uh, uh, having printing Bibles, right? The Reformation without the printing press wouldn't have happened. Uh, but that means that you know, having printing press make an explosion on, on literacy, uh, and then you, you can control the this you, you lose control of the discourse in a way that the churches were used to, right? Because then folks are interacting with the text, right, individually. Uh, then later on, you can think about radio, right? Radio technology kind of allows. Uh, interaction of, of folks from different parts of the country of the world uh, to hear expressions of, of about their religion differently than what they're used to. So I'm start thinking kind of early televangelism, right, via uh, the radio or even TV. Right. Um, I always joke that in the Caribbean there was a, a an evangelist. His name was Gigi Abula, who used to hate television. Right. Television was a devil's box. Uh, right. You, you don't see it. It's sinful and creates all kind of damaging relationship and destroy the family, etc. Um, Forward 15, 20 years later, he's the biggest evangelist in the Caribbean, Central South America. Uh, right. So he learned how to then maximize that particular space.
1: Uh, Dr. Ortega, can I just um, I want you to go back to something because. The point about adult faith formation, because I think actually it's why a lot of people go to seminary, I'm making a generalization and y'all can be upset at me if you want to our viewers, but I genuinely believe over the time I've been a Unitarian Universalist, one thing I've noticed about some people, not all, hashtag not all people um, who go to seminary do so because they are not fulfilled in their own congregation, not necessarily because either they should be a minister or it is helpful to them or the denomination that they go into ministry. However, that's a phenomenon that I've absolutely noticed. So is there, and then you alluded to that, like, you know, there's trauma, there's um, been neglect of really centering our theology. So what are the ways that you envision Needville Lombard addressing that with your seminarians now?
4: Um. So I'm making it up to myself for uh, something that I want to forget to, to share with you uh, You know, for me, this, these two pieces are connected, right? And, 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 and what I wanna say that uh, to, to close the point on technology is that a lot of us are doing religion technologically, right? Because we don't feel that we have to necessarily be in community uh, either because of work commitment, uh, space, uh, et cetera. Um, our spiritual religion is becoming digitalized. And that is either one-to-one, oftentimes one-to-many. And and not all spaces are created equal, right? uh, In that experience and how do we interact? Uh, But what what that also means is that then our faith formation path become kind of tailored and individualized, right? Uh, What I I can consume, uh, where I consume it, Uh, but it also expansive, right? The, the, The market for religious ideas now is, you know, you log in into YouTube and you just type whatever you want and you can expose yourself, right? To a lot of different ways of understanding Right, the, the religious universe now um I think this is not a problem solely uh, about you use as a fit but it's a problem that I, that I think is a trend in theological formation in general right you have a, a generation uh, between the say uh, 30s and, and 20s right that grew up um, maybe with minimal more exposure uh, to religion right. Um, or to multiple exposure, uh, exposure to religion, but not kind of religious in the in traditional sense, right? In which, you know, either Sunday, Saturday or Friday are the times in which uh, a faith community, right? Whatever that, that may look like. Uh, so folks are becoming then energized uh, either in, in, through the college experience, university, uh, through a life crisis or, or a life change, right? Folks have an experience to start seeking, right? For connection. Um, and, and what I'm experiencing, right, either, uh, and this is not solely you, you, I think this is theological education in general, uh, is that folks are understanding that in congregational life becomes kind of religious and faith light in some ways, um, right, that the only path towards uh, fulfillment, right, or, or deeper growth is to go to a theological school. Now, keep in mind, uh, some of the definition I'm thinking, uh, we don't have anything similar to what Pentecostals do with the Bible Institute, right? There are more kind of localized spaces of, of some theological education information, uh, right? We don't have anything akin to that, right? So we create uh, a challenge. Um, related to that, and this is particular uh, for us to use, uh, is that the, the only path that we have authorized for for religious leadership as a movement so far uh, is to become a minister right and and in some ways that it, that is the only path that become kind of really um, authorizing spaces that are, are granted uh the kind of re- recognition right of of leadership um, and that also means that you will have uh kind of lay leaders who are committed committed to the movement right who want to do very uh, creative work has a potential and a passion to do it that feel um kind of the need, right, to go to seminary, to have their ministry, right, which is active, uh, um, acknowledged as the ministry, right? Um, and again, this is part of the dynamic, there's nowhere in the books, um, right? But I think that some of the dynamics that you oftentimes see for folks and have here over uh, over the years, right, folks commenting, right? that That is that that process. Now, in terms of, of, of seminary education, right, what, what are we doing and what we can do? Uh, There is, on on the one hand, a a time and practical challenge, right, uh, for us, because um, part of the challenge is where seminary education, theological school, right, in general are geared in a way that you're basically assuming that folks are coming with the bare, uh, the background, right, at least a, a very solid foundation upon which to build, right. So in some ways, right, you're coming to theological school to do graduate level work, right, in religion and theology, uh, meaning that you already have a particular kind of foundation on, on which you can build. Um, but that is oftentimes not the case, right? So folks uh, are learning kind of the the one-on-one basics, uh, right, of UU theology and history and information at the same time that they have to move through um, a challenging curriculum, right, um, that is preparing you for ordained ministry, right, or any other kind of, of, of uh, faith service and and that creates uh, a kind of dichotomy that i'm thinking from my from a learning perspective right you are kind of compressed right because you're already coming with deep lacunas right into the world uh, so um at this particular moment right the way in which i can see that shifting right is with intentional conversations and interaction with uh faith communities on the ground right congregations uh right what are congregations are actually doing Uh, And how can we partner with congregations to kind of both understand what are the challenges they're facing on the ground, uh, but also help uh, equip, right, promote uh, the kind of theological literacy right and practices to shape prevention. And in fact, one of my hopes of that is that I think that can actually lead to the growth of the movement, uh, right, because then folks will not feel that they have to go to another faith community, uh, right, to be deeper into the work.
2: We have a, a really um, robust conversation happening online about trauma, religious trauma and ministry, and uh, I want to throw out two questions that folks um, have put uh, in our online chat. One from Kiana Perkins, super fan of our show, um, who uh, wonders in if we're talking about trauma-informed faith formation, where is the intersection of therapy <laughs> and faith? And does, I guess, I, I I would add, does that exist in our congregations or elsewhere? And Lori Stone-Zertowski from Behind the Chalice asks, so deep, given this deep need in our faith communities, how do we prepare ministers to serve in bold ways when congregations may be reluctant to do their own work and remediate religious trauma? So I guess two yeah. questions. Um, I, We we can we can have other shows on your other priorities, but this this uh, religious trauma and theological malpractice (laughs) has clearly struck a nerve uh, with lots of people, and it's fascinating. So if you might
4: actually, I I can answer the question, but I need to make a caveat first and a very important one uh, because the the membership professionals is the organization that is having a lot of this conversation uh, on religious trauma. Right. And I think last last year they put a conference together right on the topic. Uh, they have folks who are operating trauma informed and they're doing a, a worship in GA, right, dealing with the topic. And I think that that, that is important, right, to, to, to recognize and lift up that work because, because it is happening. Um, and, and the reason, I think uh, one of the reasons that is not often recognized, right, is because the, the work that they do is not oftentimes framed as, as ministry, right? And again, given that the role that we recognize as ministry uh, is more often than not, right? The ordained minister, right? The, the ministers, the, the, the work of the different teams, right? Even the, the board, the work that the board do is ministry, right? Uh, the board of the worship team does is ministry, right? The RE work is ministry, right? Uh, um, the membership engagement, right? That is ministry, right? Stewardship is ministry. Uh, but we don't, we don't see it as, as such more often than not some contexts are different. right? I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think um, my sense is as, as a mood, right? That's not our discourse. Um, in, in my understanding, one of the reasons the membership professionals, right, starting to do this trauma-informed work is because they are the first responders oftentimes, right? And into they are the ones who pick up the call when somebody's in crisis to make the appointment with the minister or somebody else, um, right? And when you make that phone call, then you have the conversation with, with the folks, right? So they are the ones that are you know, interacting uh, right away and doing the first line of ministry right in, into the work. Um, so, um, I I just wanted to to lift that up because I think it's important, and and I will say that it's even actually shaping the own way in which I think about this this conversation right. Um, in in terms of of how uh, that we work that then for theological education and preparing ministers for, um, I'm I'm going to share this idea, and it could be a little. Hmm. I don't know how we're gonna land with folks, but uh, as a sociologist, right, I think that one of the realities in our congregations is that um, what I'm encouraging folks and students to think about is that any particular ministerial context uh, should be kind of presumed to be an after after pastor situation, right, and this is not just sexual misconduct, right, this could be uh, all the levels of misconduct that could happen, um, and it might not necessarily have been the minister itself, right? Or, uh, but what I mean by that is that a lot of our congregations are already have experienced trauma that has traveled generationally through the congregation. Um, and oftentimes folks are not even aware, right, of that, but it live in this space, right? Um, and, and what that hap- what the reality of that is that every so often uh, it will come up, right? It will come up. So um, part of the after pastor situation, right, uh, are situations in which there is... Um, uh, a case of uh, either uh, ministerial uh, misconduct, right? That have created harm within the community, right? And and that takes right uh, many d- the different shapes. Um, and I would say, as, as you use, we have not been particular. Um, um, in some ways, we have been proactive. In other ways, not proactive enough, right? Because of a process of, of uh, negotiated resignation, uh, has allowed that a particular you know, a failed ministry, right? For whatever the reasons may be close. And oftentimes that repeats itself in other other spaces. Now, there are many reasons, right? Why a ministry can go sideways, right? It's not always the minister, it's not always the congregation, right? But there are spaces in which you can see uh, some things happening over and over again, right? If a particular congregation have four negotiated resignations in a row, right? You know, there's something in the system, right? uh, To make that a reality. Right. Otherwise, I don't know how to explain it, Uh, which means that there's a a trauma and there's issues in that space that have not been dealt with effectively. Uh, Given our culture of of secrecy and informality, we tend not to be open about those things. And what we oftentimes do is like, well, um, I will let you make your own information and your own sense about what's happening, which means that you're stepping in all kinds of line lines and line fields. and processes that are not helpful to you. So I think in terms of ministerial um preparation, right, to be trauma informed, one of the things that we need to do uh is uh, equip our candidates to manage conflict effectively, right? Um and, and, and I mean conflict right with a in, in, in a larger sense, right? Not not just interpersonal conflict or arguments, right? But understanding how to engage a system uh that is already malfunctioning, right, because of um, prior hurt. Right. And it could be the case that of that you are in a system in which folks are not in the space anymore, but that hurt still lives in there. Right. Um, and, and that means and the conflict piece is important because in order to engage that, you're going to have to move through very intentional uh, conversation and discussion to decide who you want to be as a faith community. Right. What are you willing to let go? Uh, what are you going to keep uh, And What are you going to let's say, as we say, call it community, pray your way through. Right.
0: And, and I think I think that's important for for congregations to, you know, as we come into this time of being more open about, you know, trying to do fewer negotiated resignations that have, um, you know, clauses of confidentiality, and trying to do fewer, um, to be more open and transparent about what's going on in congregations. I think one of the messages that we also need to pull in um, <coughs> that conflict isn't a bad thing that con- that transformation through conflict can be a good thing mm-hmm. that conflict can surface the things that need to be talked about and and right. loved through and prayed through yeah. and worked <clears throat> through um and so that conflict in itself um it, you know our conflict avoidance around that is is very typical of the white supremacy mm-hmm. culture that that conflict you know it, it can it can actually feel good because you can actually get to the mm-hmm. things that you just really need to dig into and get through.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And
0: so you know, yeah. having having as you said, candidates who are willing mm-hmm. to do that and not just wanting to like, oh, make it like make it feel good, you know, as quickly as humanly possible is yeah. is really um, great to hear.
4: And, you know, something something that gets me excited, like before joining this call, right, I was at a call with some faculty members uh, and we were actually talking about uh, worship and liturgy. And one of the pieces that for me and the reason I mentioned that is because uh, in order to do this work effectively, we are going to have to create new rituals. um, Right. And and, uh, new new ways of being together in worship uh, to help us and give us the sustenance and, and the strength to actually make this work possible right um, And as a, as a faith community, right and that is one of the strengths I think that we can put into the system, right. And I think uh, for, for us at Midvale, right this is, this is a piece that we are really engaging uh, concretely, right. And one of the things that we are uh, having very intentional conversations around um, is there are pieces that we are going to be able to meet curricularly, but there are pieces that we have to work co-curricularly right and in partnership with others to kind of round up that experience. Right, because I mean, there's so much we can do with you know 90 credits in three years, and the internship, and all the other works. Um, but we also know that we have uh, you know uh, alums and others that we can call into the work, right? To round up some of these experiences, to have intentional conversation around what's happening right in your congregation. How are you managing it? Because we can learn from those experiences, right? Uh, we we can learn from that from that space. Actually, one of the things that, that I'm thinking, uh, I have a recent visit to the Virginia congregation uh, when Jean Papke was also a member of our board. And in that conversation, one of the things that I learned right in that space uh, is, that, and is that we tend to prioritize the learning that happens in theological school disconnected from what happened in the congregational level. Like, for example, we cannot replicate a board experience right in a, in a seminary classroom without having actual board members, right? Being part of that conversation. And for me it's like, whoa, what would it look like for us to kind of recreate, either via Zoom or in space, right? A board meeting um, that is an actually real board meeting, right? And have folks participate as an enlarged learning community, which is one of of the priorities that I hope to, uh, not that I hope to, that I'm gonna be working towards, right? Co-creating those intentional learning communities because that is important, right? If we want effective ministers, right, that ought to happen. Um, Another conversation that is popping up for us is um, smaller congregations, right? I think in our movement, we tend to think always about the big congregations, right? But the smaller ones have such a big role to play uh, in preparing and and kind of, I don't want to say finishing school, right? But most of our ministers and recent grads will go more than likely to a smaller congregation. And, And I think the discourse oftentimes is that this is kind of JV, and it's like, no, this is not JV, this is real ministers ministry with folks that are willing to do the work and that also need to help and can teach you a lot right and can work with you uh, and shape you in particular ways as a minister and he's like well that is a good opportunity for us to engage right in in the process uh, as middle right Uh, that help and strengthen community communities of faith right that understand the value right that they are teaching congregations in other ways, and we don't tend to think about them that way. And he's like, "Well, why not? That is an imagination problem, not a capacity problem." And I think we can think through it.
3: I have to say, as a student at Meatville Lombard in my community and my congregational studies year, I think that our um, process of having students in the um, actual in actual congregations and also having the ability to be back in class and having connections to discussion groups and and, uh, ministers who we can process our learning with is so important. Um, Mm -hmm. I believe it's one of the better parts of our model, having a contextual learning program, because I can't recreate all of this in the classroom. I am here 20 hours a week, as unfinished as I am, and there's no better way to be finished than in an environment where this is the this is the deal. This is what you must learn. And you get an opportunity to go back to school and discuss it with people who have done this work, who are doing this work. I think it's another great model that Meville is hiring ministers in our faith and ministers outside of our faith to help us learn uh, what it means to be a minister. I know that we are at our last two minutes. Uh, Christina, what's happening next week?
0: So just a big thank you, Dr. Ortega, for joining us and, and telling us more about what's going on in the field. We so appreciate it. Um, and so next week we have um, Reverend Danielle DeBona and Reverend Clyde Gluribs coming to talk to us about GA 2020. Let's get real. And we're going to talk about how to live our faith while going on into uh, colonized indigenous lands. Um, so join us next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit
1: questformeaning.org.